mentioned uh, last week that on vacation I was studying through Joshua and Judges. And you get to the very last verse in the book of Judges, and what does it say? Anybody remember? It's certainly a commentary on our day-to-day. That's, that's a good translation, a good paraphrase. Marlene said they did what they felt like doing. And that's a good way to put it. They did what they felt. Every person did what they felt like doing. Boy, is that not a commentary on today, on 2020. Um, we're looking tonight at chapter 3. And we're going to talk about the weapons of our warfare. The weapons of our warfare. Judges, Judges 3. The weapons of our warfare. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test all those in Israel. Now notice, notice the reasons. He's going to give a couple of reasons here why when the people did not drive out all of the, the nations of Cana, the Lord left some. Since they didn't drive them out, then he intended to leave some of them for a purpose. And notice what he says about that. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test all those in Israel who had no experience of any war in Canaan. It was only that successive generations of Israelites might know war to teach those who had no experience of it before. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their ancestors by Moses. So the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters as wives for themselves, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they worshiped their gods. What a sad decline. From the end of the book of Joshua, the people saying, we will serve the Lord and only the Lord. We will be true to Him. We will not forsake Him. We will not disobey Him. From, from that short amount of time to the beginning of Judges, already look at what's happening. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of King Cushan Reshethaim of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served Cushim eight years. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave King Cushan Reshathaim of Aram into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshathaim so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. 
The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened King Eglon of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The Israelites sent tribute by him to King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he fastened it on his right thigh under his clothes. Then he presented the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who carried the tribute on their way. But he himself turned back at the sculptured stones near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king said, Silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went out, went out into the vestibule and closed the doors of the roof chamber on him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. So they waited until they were embarrassed. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. There was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the sculptured stones and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hill country, having him at their head. He said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they killed about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. No one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. After him came Shamgar, son of Anah, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat. He too delivered Israel. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the earth. Now, if you were to hear that phrase out of context, you might think we were talking about some kind of science fiction movie, right? Some type of <coughs> science fiction galactic battle. But actually, those are words right out of the Bible. Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. As Warren Wearsby says, when God goes to war, he usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers, hands them the most unusual weapons, and accomplishes through them the most unpredictable <coughs> results. For example, as we're going to see tonight, Shamgar takes what? An ox goat. And with this ox goat, he kills 600 men. We're going to look at him later tonight. Jael used a hammer and a tent peg and, and killed a captain. We'll read about her in chapter 4. Gideon routed the whole Midianite army with only pitchers and torches, clay, clay pots and torches. Samuel slaughtered a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. David killed Goliath with, a, with stones hurled from a sling. Now folks, I guarantee you if you could take a class at West Point, Warfare 101, those particular weapons would probably not show up anywhere in the syllabus. All of this just goes to show how different God's ways are from, from man's ways. What do we think of? We think of buying the biggest and the best and the strongest. We wouldn't think of going out to war with anything but the best or taking on some big project with anything but the best. Now, if we're not careful, this mindset can cross over to people as well, right? We might become tempted to think that it is only the most powerful and the wisest, the strongest, the most brilliant that God can use. Just like we only want the best weapons, we think God only uses the best people. So what happens? What do a lot of people do? They say, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I can't serve. I'm not as strong as so-and-so over there in the church. So I'm going to sit back. He'll have to do it. What's the problem with this? What's the problem in that kind of thinking? I'm relying on God. He's not relying on God. It's not the way God does things. Remember what the Lord said at what, what Paul, what the Lord said through Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 1? Paul said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Paul closes out that section by saying, so that if any man is going to boast, who's he going to boast in? He's going to boast in the Lord. <clears throat> well, what we're going to see tonight is that God chooses people who are quite different from one another, quite different from what we might even expect, 
And sometimes God uses some pretty unusual means to accomplish a victory through them. Sometimes God chooses people in means that we wouldn't even dream of. Well, if you're taking notes, I want you to see with me tonight a man filled with the Spirit. A man filled with the Spirit. Who's the first judge that we come across in chapter 3? Othniel. Now, I hope you've read the book of Judges all in one sitting, maybe this past week. If you've not, I would encourage you to go home and read it all in one sitting, okay? And you're going to get pretty sick and tired of the cycle of sin and oppression and judgment and then victory that takes place. They sin, they grow complacent, they sin, God leads them into oppression, and then they cry out to God. You're going to kind of get tired of reading that. But here in verses 7 to 9, we see it. We see that cycle for the first time. And what we see in verse 1 is that they fail the first test that had been given to them as a people when they got into the new land. And they were told to drive all the people out, to destroy them, to not take their sons or daughters for their sons and daughters and not to give their, their sons and daughters to their sons and daughters. So right off, what do we see? Disobedience. Charles Spurgeon, as I've mentioned to you before, Charles Spurgeon, probably the most famous Baptist preacher of all times of another era, said that God never allows His children to sin successfully. Well, they're sinning. Are they going to be successful in it? No, they're going to suffer. God's going to chasten them. Now, let me, let me just make a quick digression here for a moment just to remind you of the context. Uh, last Wednesday night, we, we pointed out, as I have already tonight, they have failed in that initial assignment once they entered the promised land. They failed in that. And, and they've begun accommodating to the ways of the Canaanites and the different peoples within the Canaanites, like the Amorites and Hittites and Jebusites, so forth and so on. All those ites. I think you're going to read next of termites. <laughs> so we could say operation accommodation is already taking place. Scott? Yes. Could you, you know, we're looking at disobedience, but I get the impression it was willful oh, yeah. disobedience. Sure. I mean, you had to overcome the differences of the Canaanite women. Oh, yeah. They must have been real lookers to overcome the language variation, Canaanite gods. religion, and everything. Oh, yeah. So they had to climb a mountain, so to speak, of disobedience sure. to achieve what they were doing. And it is disobedience, because as I mentioned tonight, the book of Judges closes out. Joshua reminded them they cannot serve Yahweh and the gods of the Canaanites. And 
They've said over and over, emphasizing at the end of the book of Joshua, we won't compromise. We won't. And here they are. We saw last week, as soon as Joshua died off, and that generation with him, the next generation arose who knew not God. And they began to compromise. It's a violation of the very first commandment. What does Exodus 20 verses 1 through 3 tell us? You shall have no other gods. So they're violating the very first commandment. God is a jealous God. Because he knows there are no other true and living gods. Whoever else we give our supreme devotion to, God knows that we're not going to find satisfaction and joy in that. God is jealous for us because He knows what's best. And He knows that false gods can't deliver. Now, for us, other gods could be a, a variety of things, right? Some people worship their bank accounts or their accomplishments, or their positions in life, or pleasure and entertainment, athletics, leisure. Many things that people worship today. Some people, you can't convince them to spend 15 minutes a week in the Word of God and in prayer, and yet they'll give countless hours to sports. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's pretty amazing when you see what the Israelites gravitated to here. The gods of the Canaanites. And who was the chief god? Baal. And Baal's female counterpart, Asherah. Baalism, as I've told you before, even on Wednesday nights in, in other Old Testament studies in here, it was a fertility cult. And they believed that Baal and Ashtoreth uh, engaged in immoral activity and that brought fertility to the earth. And so they would build altars to, to Baal in the high places and they would go up there and they would engage in immoral sex acts thinking that it would get Baal and Ashtoreth involved in even more immoral sex acts, and there would be fertility that would come to the land. It was a fertility cult. How in the world could, could, they get, could the Israelites get wrapped up in something like that? I mean, you talk about raw paganism. That's about as pagan as it gets. What the Israelites would sometimes do too is, is try to combine the two, Baalism and worship of Jehovah God. If they didn't do one or the other exclusively, they would try to marry them together in strange ways. And so in verse 8, what do we see here? That God's anger is kindled against them. And so God disciplines them. Why does God do that? To wake us up. As I've mentioned to you before, hardships, suffering, trials aren't always the result of sin, but oftentimes they are. Oftentimes, too, sin has its own consequences built into it, doesn't it? 
Sometimes God uses other people on top of circumstances to kind of take his children to the woodshed. Well, God was going to take Israel to the woodshed here. And so God allows them to come under the rule of a king named Kushan or Kushan Rishathayim. Now, there's a lot about this man that is a mystery. Uh, Rishathayim means double wickedness, which suggests that he was a very cruel, cruel and evil man. He kept him in bondage for eight years, and he must have been a very wicked man because only after eight years they began crying out to the Lord. Other places you'll read after 40 years or 70 years or 80 years, they cried out. After only eight years under this guy, they're crying out to the Lord. This guy must have been a pretty bad, pretty bad king over. Can I ask a question, Pastor? Uh-huh. When we're talking about them being, a, you know, an oppression, in my Bible, and I don't understand what it's saying, it says, for example, like uh, where we're at in Judges 1, we're talking about uh, the oppressors, and then it says eight years oppressed, but then it says 40 years rest. Right. After they would be delivered, They'd have maybe 40 years of rest or 60 or 70 or 80 years and then a new oppressor would come over them. There'd be some lag time you know, that they would enjoy after they cried out to God and God sent them a deliverer. Things would be good for a while and then they'd fall right back into that sin of complacency and forgetting God and sin all over again. They never ever came... I mean, this was forever, right? The way Israel is. They oh, never, yeah. oh, yeah. never surrendered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in verse 11, you have your answer there, though. Othniel was alive and influencing Israel. Sure. But so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Yeah. Yep. As long as, His as, long as the judge or the deliverer was alive, yeah. usually. After the victory, after they'd been delivered, they'd be okay for a while. Well, Othniel, we don't know a great deal about him. And, and there's some differences here. Was he Caleb's nephew or Caleb's younger brothers? Scholars debate that a little bit. You see, did, did Caleb have a younger brother named Kenaz, and Othniel was Kenaz's son, making him Caleb's nephew, or was Kenaz Caleb's mother's second husband, making Othniel Caleb's younger brother? Either interpretation is possible. It's Caleb's kinfolk, though, right? Othniel is Caleb's kinfolk. Man, what, what a family heritage this guy had. What have we already seen in, in, in the Old Testament? We've talked about Caleb. What do we know about Caleb? Caleb said, give me that mountain. Give me that mountain. Yeah. Only Caleb and Joshua, out of the spies sent out, only they came back <coughs> and said, we can take the land. And the other ten said, we can't. And the crowd went with the ten. But God, God preserved Joshua and Caleb both to be able to go in and take the land. 
So Othniel's got a he's got a good family heritage here. He must have been a courageous man too because he's willing to face off with the king whose name means double wickedness. So he's no scaredy cat. But notice his real secret of success. What do we find out about Othniel here? He was filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> Folks, isn't that the key? Think, think, about, think about the apostles in the book of Acts. <clears throat> I mean, at the crucifixion of Jesus, they're, they're running and hiding. But then in the book of Acts, Jesus... Jesus comes to them, appears to them in the upper room, tells them to wait. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. I mean, you take a Simon Peter, for example, running and hiding and in the garden. I mean, uh, after they left the garden, Jesus was arrested. He's warming himself with those. When, when Jesus has been arrested and he's denying the Lord, but man, after the Holy Spirit comes on him, He's boldly proclaiming out in the streets of the city. We must obey God rather than men. Bold. Bold witnesses. The result of the Holy Spirit. That, that's the difference right there in the apostles, right? Between the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Othniel was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the lesson here is to never underestimate what God can do through one man yielded to the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Maybe that's what you need today more than anything else. We know we're baptized in the Spirit when we're saved. That's not something that happens later. The baptism happens when we're saved. But we are to be ye being filled with the Spirit. Right? There's always a need to be filled with the Spirit. Maybe that's your greatest need tonight. To be filled afresh and anew. To be yielded to the Holy Spirit. To be surrendered to Him. Othniel was a Spirit-filled man. Then secondly, we see a man who surrendered his human weakness, beginning in verse 12. Here we're looking at Ehud. Ehud. Again, we're told after Othniel, the sons of Israel did evil, and so God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, they were all close neighbors. Not only were they Israel's next-door neighbors, but they were kissing cousins, you might say. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was the ancestor of who? Moab and Ammon, and then Esau, the brother of Jacob, was the ancestor of who? Amalek, the Amalekites. They were all just to the east of, of Israel. They all get together, organized by Eglon, king of Moab. And what do they do? They fight against Israel. They oppress Israel. Remember the tribes of Israel that were on the east of the Jordan? They must have quickly ganged up on them 
defeated them, crossed the Jordan, overtook Jericho, the city of Palms. Uh, they encamped at Jericho. At Jericho, there would have been a good supply of water. It was a fertile city in a very dry desert area. Well, this time when the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord, he raises up a left-handed man. In today's world, lefties are at somewhat of a disadvantage, right? Any lefties in here? One? Just one? Okay. I've had left-handed people comment to me before that in many ways it's a right-handed world. Tools and different things made primarily for right-handed people. You know, I'm surprised lefties haven't, every group now is protesting something, right? I'm surprised lefties haven't gotten together and protesting. Because, for instance, in French, a man who is awkward is called a gotcha, meaning left-handed. Something that's evil or wicked is referred to as being what? Sinister. Something evil or wicked. Sinister. Which comes from a, from a Latin root meaning, again, left hand. So I'm surprised left is that, you know, kind of protesting some of this stuff today. But again, you probably would say it's a nuisance at times. Yeah. Has been. But just wait. We'll organize. <laughs> Back then, though, and in some cultures, it was actually considered a defect. Now, the situation may be worse than that. The text can also be translated a man handicapped in the right hand. So he may not have been left-handed by, by choice. The phrase can also mean, and the, the best option of all of the Hebrew text may simply mean that he was, what's that big word? Starts with the A for both. Amphibious. 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 That might be the best reading of all. That he was just able to switch and use his left. But like, what, what, what if he's handicapped? Left-handed by choice. A limitation, right? Limitation. Whatever the situation was, he, he let God use that aspect about his physical nature, right? The guards, because most were right-handed, the guards didn't even check the inside of his right thigh. They would have checked the left because the right-handed man would reach under his cloak to the left side. And so he was able to sneak in a dagger. So again, whatever the situation, especially, I think, if, if he was disabled, and that's why he was left-handed, he's limited. And still, he lets God use his limitation, his handicap. Can you think of anybody else in Scripture that did that? 
come on, class. Who near the beginning of the Bible? I mean, the second book in the Bible said he was kind of handicapped in one way. Moses. Moses. Handicapped because he was slow of speak. He couldn't speak well. Then I think about the Apostle Paul, too. In the New Testament, you know, the Corinthians made points saying, you know, he writes to us in his letters, and boy, his letters are strong, but you see this guy, and he's he's not very impressive to look at. Kind of a puny little squirrely fellow. What limitations do you have? God can use those too. Again, God, the Scripture says that God chooses the, the foolish things, the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Because again, if God chose the strongest, the prettiest, the wisest, everybody would stand back and say what? Look what we did. Look what man did. But when God chooses the weak things, everybody stands back and says, look what God did. So, I mean, look what Ehud does. Uses his limitation to deliver Israel against Eglon. Sneaks in the dagger, stabs him. All the way into him. <laughs> Fat even swallows the handle and everything. Well, it says it was a cubic. Is that about 18 inches? 18 inches. That's a lot of fat. That's a lot of fat. <laughs> Uh, well let's also talk about a man who served despite his commonness verse verse 31 says after him came Shamgar son of Anath who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat he lived at a time when the Philistines were beginning to exert power in the southwest corner of Israel. Later they would become even a more troubling force, but here we see that they're already causing trouble. Well, why do I say Shamgar was common or average? He didn't have, didn't seem to have Othniel's family advantage. Shamgar's not a Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name. His father's name was Anath. That was the name of the Canaanite god of sex and war. That tells us that Shamgar didn't have the family heritage and legacy of an Othniel. His family had probably at the very least wedded Hebrew ways with Canaanite ways. And so he had probably grown up with a very synchronistic view of the Hebrew faith. At the worst, maybe his family had outright rejected the Hebrew faith and adopted Canaanite ways and religion wholeheartedly. And so maybe Shamgar grew up with very little understanding whatsoever of, of Yahweh. He was evidently a peasant. His weapon is what? An ox goat. Folks, he's not a warrior. He's a farm boy. Shamgar's a, he's a, he's a common farm boy. He's a peasant. 
An ox goad was a long wooden stick with a metal tip on one end and a blade on the other end for cleaning the plow. Farm boy, country boy. So it appears like Shamgar didn't even have a what we call a real weapon. But what he had, what did he do? He used, killed 600 Philistines. Now folks, this doesn't mean that one guy takes on an army of 600 at one time. You know, some of the, I get so tired of some of these action movies. <laughs> you know, the star jumps off a five-story building while flipping through the air, lands, gets up, whips a dozen men, it's a woman that's doing that. Yeah, it might even be a woman doing it. Jumps in a car, goes down the highway, maybe running 120, flips it a number of times, gets out, takes on another 15 people. Pretty unrealistic, right? Don't you get sick and tired of that in some of these movies? How unrealistic. But anyway, that's probably not what happened here. Probably when it says he killed 600, what just over time, no. One or two here, two or three there, one more over here. Maybe he took on two here. You add them all up, 600. Again, that means he took on 600 at one time. But the result the same. So, common farm boy. Yet again, what do we see about him? Surrendered to the Lord. Uses what he has. God uses it. <clears throat> Have you ever read much about D.L. Moody? He didn't have much of an English language, uh, much of an education, and not much of an education in the English language either. He would slaughter the English language. Uh, people would just about cringe when they heard him talk. Just slaughtered the English language. On one occasion, a man met him at the door after his service where he had preached, and he said, Mr. Moody, I counted 70 grammatical errors in your sermon today. I hope the guy heard the sermon. <laughs> Moody looked at him as the story goes and said, Sir, I gave my best to Jesus. How about you? Have you? And yet, look at the mighty ways God used D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. <clears throat> Common average person. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not advocating for mediocrity. I'm not saying if you can do better, don't worry about doing better. Just do as little as you can. I'm not saying that at all. Give God your best. Whatever it is, give him that. But what I'm saying is, if your best in your mind doesn't measure up to the best of some superstars today, don't worry about that. Some people let their commonness stop them from doing a lot of things. But think about all the disciples of Jesus. In the book of Acts, when the authorities took note of them, what did they notice about the apostles? What did they say about them? Unlearned men. They were unlearned men. They were fishermen. 
there was at least one educated guy in the group probably. Matthew was a tax collector. He probably had some, some intellectual ability about him a little bit. But some of, most of them were just common fishermen. And look at, look at what God did with 11 of those apostles. Folks, churches today are full of shamgars. And that's not a bad thing. Most people, by and large, most people are just common folk. Right? I didn't offend you, did I? <laughs> Aren't you glad God's able to take the common things and the common people of this world and do extraordinary things? Amen. Listen to what Hudson Taylor, one of our hero missionaries of the past, as he looked back over 30 years of his life and ministry, uh, where he had seen 600 missionaries respond to his vision to reach China through the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor summarized what he had learned. He said, and I quote here, God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses him. We can be grateful for that, right? So what are some, what are some lessons, some application points we learned tonight? I, I, number one, I'd say, Never underestimate what God can do through one man yielded to the Holy Spirit. That'd certainly be a lesson from Othniel, a man filled with the Spirit. Never underestimate what God can do through even one man yielded to the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Second lesson would be, and again, this is taking the route that Ehud might have actually been handicapped. We see there a man who surrendered his handicaps and allowed his limitations to be used for God's glory. So even handicaps and limitations are not an excuse. Again, not just Ehud, but Moses. Same thing. Shamgar is a lesson that our resources may be limited and we may just be common and average, everyday people. But again, when we present what we have to the Lord, He multiplies it, uses it, displays His glory through it. I guess what amazes me in, in chapter 3, again, you, you, could, you could make a point about Othniel having a great family legacy. But again, that wasn't the key to his success. The Holy Spirit was. But he's the only one in this chapter who could even claim, I think, some kind of 
even a family legacy or anything. The other two just common folk. And yet God used them in mighty ways. So when you read the book of Judges, you know, you, you think of people like Gideon, you think of Samson, you think of characters like that. Don't, don't forget these three judges in chapter 3. Because you'd probably read through the book and wouldn't even give a great deal of thought to these three. But don't overlook them. God didn't. God used them. And they made a difference. Amen? Amen. <coughs> Anything else on this? I was thinking of even David was just a shepherd boy. Sure, absolutely. Yep. In fact, Jesse didn't even bother to bring him out. You know? His own dad presented the other sons and didn't even, you know, didn't even consider David, his youngest, would have been considered. Turned out to be the greatest king of all in Old Testament history, didn't he? Just the lesson here is don't ever underestimate what God can do in you and through you. But the key is that you and what you have is surrender to the Lord. Uh, we could go through not just church history, Bible history, the nation's history, some of the greatest figures you read about, just common folks. Common folks. So to me, chapter 3 of the book of Judges has a lot of hope in it for the common average man. Okay? What else? Anything else? I think uh, uh, Larry Larry Crabb started the uh, uh, started a church just using common people to play volleyball on the beach right alongside the boardwalk, which is a very decadent place. And he and he had the people invite the people to play volleyball, and we had uh, we just went on week after week after week, and eventually uh, they showed movies on the beach in pitch black, and this is a very decadent beach. And it uh, goes to the boardwalk, you know what's on there. And people would come down, play volleyball, see what's going on. And then he'd have uh, a movie screen set up on the, in the sand. <laughs> and he had a Christian movie. And then through that, uh, he was able to start a, a, a Christian church, a Trinity Baptist Church in Allenwood, New Jersey. Larry Craft. Yeah. But it's uh, just amazing. You wouldn't. Thinking, what you know <laughs> how the church got started that's how it got started <laughs> it seems like especially in the west the affluent west we've just got this attitude you've, you've got to be big rich powerful big position <clears throat> good looking this that whatever and if that's your resume, then man, you can go somewhere and do something. And that's not the way God works. That's not God's standards. So, hope you'll be encouraged by that. 
Come on, say, Lord, if you can tell, Kathy's not letting me go out because I'm just talking away. <laughs> i got to find somebody to talk to. <laughs> but you, you said Tamara Hudson and D.L. Moody. I read a great book by Hudson Edwards in 25 or 50 biographies uh -huh. of all those guys. Yes. You know, all the way from... That's, that's a good book. Do what? That's a very good book oh, that you're making awesome. mention of. It's yeah. awesome. Like, what is it? The 50, 50, 50 most influential Christians of the last century or something like Steve, that. Steve got me on that. Okay. It's a good, very good book. Yeah. And for the most part, just what we're saying tonight, it's a roll call of common folk yeah. that God used. Yeah.